Well, this is the second in our series in the book of Hebrews. And I want to sort of begin our time this morning with a question. How important is heaven to you? If you're a Christian here this morning, I wonder, how often do you think about the future God has in store for his people? How important is that in your daily life? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I sort of imagine that the idea of heaven, it's one of those slightly awkward beliefs you've heard Christians have, but you're just not sure what to do with it. You see, heaven gets a pretty poor press in our world. We seem incapable of picturing it in our culture without it becoming sort of a bright white, slightly boring place where you play a harp. And according to one series of television commercials in recent years, heaven will be populated entirely of youngish women who enjoy soft cheese. <laughs> and that maybe narrows the appeal of heaven even more for some of us. See, for many of us, heaven, it's a little bit of a joke. It appears to be pretty irrelevant. We're not sure what to do with it. And it has to be said that Christians also can feel pretty ambivalent about heaven. We sometimes worry that life in heaven would be equivalent of a regular church service, only longer. Perhaps with fewer notices, but still a long church service. And on that front, it does not sound attractive to us. And on a more serious note, many Christians also fear that, in the words of the famous phrase, that to be too heavenly minded means you're going to be no earthly use. We shouldn't really think about heaven too much, because instead we need to get on with things. Get on with the tasks God gives us today in the here and now. So the charity Christian Aid, for instance, has the strap line, we believe in life before death. Again, a useful corrective to people who think if you believe in heaven, it doesn't matter what happens here and now. But also that strap line shows sort of an ambivalence about life after death, about future glory. What are we meant to do with that belief? We're just not sure in the modern Western world how important heaven really is. But as we turn to these chapters in Hebrews, Hebrews 3 and 4, we're going to see that the writer of this letter has a very different response to heaven, to a Christian's future hope. Because he argues, and throughout the letter he argues this, that the hope of glory is absolutely essential to a Christian's life to a Christian's healthy life. This writer, he's not embarrassed about future glory. In fact, he does his utmost to lift our eyes to the future God has in store for his people. The future won for them by Jesus Christ through the cross and through his resurrection. And if you were here last week, you'll Maybe remember that this letter to the Hebrews, it's written to a group of discouraged Christians, disillusioned Christians, to a group of Christians struggling to keep going in the face of suffering, of opposition, of the hostility of the world and their own sense of their weakness. And we saw that in chapters 1 and 2, the writer's remedy for that discouragement is a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. And in particular, throughout this letter, the writer keeps bringing his readers back to three core truths they need to hold on to in the face of discouragement. Who Jesus is, what he has done for them 
through his death and resurrection. We're going to turn to that next week. But crucially for this morning, what Jesus will do for them in bringing them into the future he has prepared for them. See, the writer feels these Christians need to know about the future, about God's purposes for them. First heaven, but ultimately a new creation, free from sin and death. And you might expect a passage that points Christians forward to glory, to have sort of an upbeat tone, a warm, encouraging tone. But actually, as Ruth read it for us, I hope we saw, we don't get one here. See, in contrast to the encouragement of chapters 1 and 2, this week, the writer of Hebrews is issuing warnings. He's issuing rebukes, stark challenges to his readers. You see, he's worried that his readers are forgetting about the future. They're forgetting what God has promised to them. And this writer knows that the future God promises his people matters to our lives here and now. In fact, it matters enormously. Because if we begin to doubt that God really is leading us into a glorious future, that Jesus really will bring an end to sin and death and evil once and for all when he returns, then the writer is convinced our relationship with God is in terrible danger. We will not be able to persevere in the face of struggle. And we will be guilty of hardening our hearts to the promises of God. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, then the message of these chapters is is a strong one. We need to be looking ahead to heaven and the new creation if we are going to be enabled to follow Jesus here and now. And as I've read that message this week, preparing for this morning, I'm convinced it's a message we need to listen to today. So you've already, already seen this morning, we're just not accustomed to thinking about the future. We're not accustomed to seeing the relevance of glory in our lives here and now. We just don't know what to do with it. We instinctively think that what matters is the present. What's going on now? What matters are the challenges, the opportunities of today. So the future just is pretty irrelevant to us. But the writer says we need to remember this future if we're going to meet the challenges and the opportunities of the present. In order to live for Jesus now, we need to be people who look forward to what Jesus will do in the future. And if we lose sight of that, then the writer warns us we are in danger of hardening our hearts to God in the face of struggle and opposition. So basically, these these chapters of Hebrews, you could characterise them as a warning. A warning against unbelief. And again, we need to see they follow on from words of encouragement, words that came in chapters 1 and 2 that that lift the eyes of his readers to Jesus, the character of the God who has saved them. And he carries on with that in chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read that for us again. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. 
he again lifts our eyes to Jesus because we need to see him to persevere today. But then he goes on to contrast Jesus with Moses, the great leader and lawgiver to the Hebrew people. And again, from what little we know of the original readers of this letter, most of them seem to have been from a Jewish background. So Moses would have been a revered figure for them. But the writer wants them to see that as great and honourable as Moses was, Jesus is far greater, verse 3. And his references to Moses lead the writer from verse 7 onwards to quote from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, a psalm that reflects on the time of Moses, on the fate of the Israelites who sinned and rejected God's promise of the future when they were on the border of the promised land. Let me just read verse 7 to 11 for us again. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The writer is convinced that these words from the Old Testament are words written to his readers today. See, all the way through Hebrews, this Christian writer keeps quoting from the Old Testament because he says the Old Testament is actually written for Christians. It's written for us. It is written for a purpose. And that is to show us the state of our hearts. And he emphasizes that at the end of chapter 4 in our reading, verses 12 to 13. Just turn to chapter 4, verse 12 for a minute. This is the writer's view of the Old Testament. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, he's not just giving his readers a history lesson here about what happened to the Israelites in the desert. No, he is convinced that Psalm 95 will expose the hearts of his readers. Maybe the hearts of where they are now, or the hearts of where they could be if they drift away from God. See, the writer is convinced that his readers are not that different to the Israelites in the desert who grumbled against God and refused to believe in the future God had promised to them. Again, remember, this letter, it's written to discouraged Christians. And I hope we saw last week again, the writer's initial reaction is to encourage them, to comfort them, to reassure them that God is with them. But you see here, in chapters 3 and 4, he follows up that encouragement with a strong warning. Because there comes a point when a struggling, discouraged Christian is in danger of becoming an unbelieving Christian, when genuine struggle in the Christian life tips over into unbelief. 
And the essence of unbelief, according to these chapters, is the refusal to trust God and to believe that his purposes for you are good. Let me just repeat that. Unbelief is the refusal to trust God and to believe that his purposes for you are good. Because that is what happened to the Israelites in the desert, according to Psalm 95. Now turning to that psalm, this, this psalm that he quotes here, it's a meditation on events recorded elsewhere in the book of Numbers, chapters 14 to 15. And the story so far at that point in Israel's life is that through Moses, God has rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And now, just a matter of months later, they are on the border of Canaan, the promised land. The land God had promised to give them when they were slaves in Egypt. And at the beginning of Numbers 13, God tells Moses to send spies into the land of Canaan to explore the land before the Israelites take possession of it. The spies return 40 days later with the report that the land is rich and fertile. It is every inch the land God promised them. A land flowing with milk and honey. As a young boy, I didn't really like milk or honey, so that didn't attract me. But this was a great thing for a desert community. And an example of its fertility, that it even takes two men to carry one cluster of grapes back to the Israelite camp. The spies go and they say, This land is incredible. It is rich and fertile. And remember, that is the land God promised to give the Israelites. But you see, very quickly, there was a problem. Because most of the spies who'd explored the land began to tell the Israelites that there was no way they could ever take possession of it. The inhabitants of the land, they're much too strong, they said. There are too many of them. Their cities are too much fortified. They're huge. As wonderful a land as Canaan is, you have to accept the fact, Israelites, you will never take possession of it. Numbers 13, verse 31. We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And Psalm 95 is clear. In this, the Israelites were guilty of unbelief. See, God had promised that community that he would give them this land. And they had seen for themselves it was a glorious land, a fantastic future home for them. And yet because of the obstacles in their way, because of the opposition, they just cannot believe that God has the power to keep his promise. So they refuse to go in. God has promised them a great future. But they don't believe him. And they stay where they are. They harden their hearts to the voice of God. That's what the writer is saying with this, the voice of God refrain here. That voice is promising the Israelites a glorious future But the Israelites don't believe him. And God's response to their unbelief is recorded in Psalm 95, verses 10 to 11 of our reading here this morning in Hebrews 3. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. 
So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. They refused to believe God. And so they didn't enter that rest. The book of Numbers tells us God led the Israelites to wander for 40 years until that whole generation of Israelites had died out and it was to their children that God finally gave the land of Canaan. God finally showed he did have the power to keep his promises. And why was God so angry at their unbelief? Well, Numbers 14, verse 11 tells us Because their unbelief is a rejection, a personal rejection of the God who had saved them. God says, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? See, at the heart of the Israelites, fear of the land of Canaan was a refusal to believe in the living God. Worse, it was a contempt for God. God can't overcome those Canaanites. Who's he kidding? We can't go into the land. He's just not strong enough to deliver on that promise. And so that generation of Israelites didn't enter the land. They didn't enter the rest that God had prepared for them. Again, why does the writer of Hebrews refer to this rebellion in the desert over 1,000 years before his readers had lived? Well, it's because he is afraid that his readers are in danger of falling into the same unbelief as the Israelites here. Just read verse 12 for us of chapter 3. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See, Israel in the desert, it is a warning for the Hebrew Christians. The writer knows they are discouraged. He knows they're struggling. He knows that the obstacles in front of them just seem enormous to them, ever sticking at the Christian life. And again, he speaks words of comfort to them, but also words of warning. In Psalm 95, it is the word of God's to those Christians and it is a rebuke to them don't allow your discouragement to tip over into unbelief don't respond to the struggles of the Christian life by beginning to doubt that God's promises are true that God has the power to keep you because if that is your response if you're doubting God's power to keep you then you're just like the Israelites in the desert you are treating God with contempt. You're denying his power to keep you. Verses 16 to 19. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The writer wants his readers to get this. Don't let unbelief disqualify you from the future that God has in store for his people. For his people who trust in him. Who humble themselves before him. 
and recognize his promises can be trusted. And I hope we can see this morning, this warning for the Hebrew Christians, it's a warning for every community of Christians who will face times of struggle and discouragement. And that includes us here today. It's a warning for us. Because unbelief, it's not something we quickly embrace, is it? Unbelief is something that develops very slowly and gradually in the life of a Christian. Over time, it takes root. Over time, we begin to think more and more of the struggles that face us, of the discouragements of living as fallen people in a fallen world, of the hostility of people who think we are crazy to believe in this God. Over time, we think more of those struggles than we do of the living God whose grace is sufficient for us in those struggles. We begin to doubt that God really can help us. That God's promise really is trustworthy. The struggle just feels too much. That's where the Hebrew Christians were at this point. I wonder, can you relate to that feeling? Is all you can see the struggle that you've lost sight of the God who has promised you a glorious future. So the writer is warning his readers, don't fall into that trap. And then also he goes on to remind them of just what God has promised to those who put their faith in him. What God has promised his people. And again, for Christians we need to say that our promised land is no longer the land of Canaan as it was to the Israelites. No, God has promised to give us something far greater, the writer tells us. It is a new creation. Back in chapter 2, he began to explore that new creation by telling us that this will be a world free from sin and death. Just look at chapter 2, verse 5 again with us. Because chapter 2, verse 5, he lifts our eyes to the world to come. And then he quotes from another psalm, Psalm 8, and he assures us that in that world, in that new creation that God has in store for his people, everything will be subject to us. We will finally be at home in the natural world. And again, he's really blunt that that's not the case right now. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2, the second part. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. The writer's saying, that's not the world we live in now. It's our future world. Today we live in a world cursed by sin. And the evidence of that curse can be seen all around us in our worlds. From natural disasters, like floods, like tsunamis, like earthquakes, to more mundane things like like sunburn, like nettle stings. See, in a profound way, the natural world is opposed to us. Again, I, I read about the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield. He used to put it very memorably to his hearers. He said, Dost thou know why the wild animals fear and growl and shriek at thee? Because they know thou hast a quarrel with their master. He says, The animals don't like you very much because you've rejected God, Whitfield was saying. 
But there's going to come a time when all of creation is restored and you will be in harmony with the natural world, not alienated from it anymore. That's the future that this writer is pointing us towards. A physical creation, according to Psalm 8. A creation free from sin and death because Jesus has defeated sin and death. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. He destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, that is the future in store for God's people. A world free from sin and death. And then in chapter 4, he describes it as a place of rest. Let me read verses 9 to 10 of chapter 4. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. He's saying, just as God rested from the work of creation in Genesis 2, so Christians will one day enjoy rest from the struggle against sin and a hostile world. And they'll live in close community with the God who alone can give us rest. See, God's rest is described as a place here. The place where God lives and reigns. So to enter God's rest is to be where God is. And that's in keeping with other descriptions of the new creation, of our future hope in the Bible. So in the book of Revelation, for instance, at the end of time we're told that instead of Christians going up to heaven, heaven comes down to earth and God lives among his people in a restored creation where he will dwell with them forever. And on that day, they will see how much, how deeply he has loved them and how great his purposes have always been for them. See, God describes the future for believers as a place of rest. And that is deeply comforting to struggling and discouraged Christians, isn't it? You will get to rest The struggle won't last forever. God is preparing a better place for you if you hold on to him. See, I hope we're beginning to see as we come to an end this morning why the writer feels that knowing the future God has in store for us is so important to our lives here and now. The writer is convinced that future glory matters. And it matters for for a couple of reasons. It matters, first of all, we've already seen this, because it reassures us that God's purposes for you are good. Again, if all we see and think about in our lives as Christians is the struggle with sin, the hostility of the world, the discouragements that come, then we will lose heart and will even doubt that God loves us, that his purposes are good. And you need to notice, the writer of Hebrews doesn't tell them that that it's not a struggle now. He doesn't tell them it's just an illusion for them. He actually acknowledges they're going to suffer when they're tempted. That's chapter 2, verse 18 again. They're going to struggle when they're tempted because Jesus suffered when he was tempted. 
But he says, then all the more you need to see the place of rest that is awaiting you. That God's purposes are good. Don't believe just present circumstances. Look to the future of what God has in store for us. Your struggles will not have the final word. And the writer thinks these Christians need to hear that. And also linked into that, struggles and discouragements will come to an end. And if we're going to persevere for Jesus, we need to see that. Again, it's only when we blind ourselves to the reality of this world that we, that we don't struggle. Again, we live in a world of terrible injustice, where the strong trample on the weak. We live in a world where sickness and death separate loved ones. But they seem to mock at our efforts at relationships with each other. We live in a world where we're fallen, where the people we love are fallen. And so there is frustration constantly when we don't satisfy each other's longings for love and forgiveness and friendship. But you see, that struggle won't last forever, the writer says. That will come to an end And we need to remember that if we're going to keep going. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, the writer says. A time when that struggle will end. You will see Jesus face to face and God will wipe every tear from your eyes. Struggle and discouragement will not have the last word for those who trust in Jesus. And a third reason why looking ahead to future glory is so important here and now is sort of a sobering one, but also a liberating one. We will not find true satisfaction in this world. We will not find it. The writer doesn't tell these Christians, just work harder at your spiritual disciplines, just pray more, just read the Bible more, and then the struggle will just evaporate. No, he says, you will struggle here because Jesus did. You'll struggle here because it's a world marred by sin. Stop looking for heaven here and now. You're not there yet, the writer tells his readers. Life will not be perfect this side of the new creation, so don't expect it to be. Instead, learn to enjoy the small, imperfect foretastes of glory There are here. And then look ahead to that completed glory in the future. I think that is a message that can liberate us today. No friendship will ever fully satisfy you here and now. You're a sinner. Your friends are sinners. So you need to stop looking for perfection and instead accept those imperfections And enjoy the friendship for the gift that it is. No marriage will be perfect here and now. You're a sinner. Your partner is a sinner. So again, just enjoy marriage for what it is. Something imperfect, a sign of God's love and mercy in a fallen world, but also a foretaste of that perfect marriage we will all be part of when we are married to our bridegroom. Jesus Christ. And we could go on with that. No job 
will satisfy us. No home, no children, no holiday. Full satisfaction will only be found in the world to come. So accept that and live now in the knowledge that that is coming. So that will equip you to deal with the frustrations and imperfections of today. See, only the living God can truly satisfy us. As Augustine put it, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And God's word to these Christians and to us, his voice to us today, is that he will satisfy us in the new creation. So don't harden your hearts. Don't fall into unbelief. He's able to keep his promises. He showed that when he raised Jesus back to life after three days. He has shown his power to us. So when you hear his promise of a glorious future, believe it, take hold of it, trust it, and do not fall into unbelief. And to help us do that, in the middle of this section, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. So this is where we come in to this picture. Because the writer then tells us we need to encourage one another daily. Let me just read verses 12 to 14 for us. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. See, the writer says sin is deceitful. It will lie to us. We need one another to see through that lie. We need one another's help if we are going to persevere. And the writer urges them to sort of a mutual encouragement that we should pray that we would demonstrate here in this church. He tells them to fight with sin together. Call sin, sin. When you find sin attractive, talk about it. Help one another to see through its deceitfulness. Listen to God's word together, to God's voice together. On Sundays, in home groups, in prayer triplets, in our conversation, how often do we remind one another of the future that God has in store for us? It just doesn't come naturally to us. But we need to learn. This world doesn't have the final word. That belongs to God. Your struggle won't last forever. There will be a time when you will rest from it with Jesus. So look ahead to God's rest together. That is part of encouraging one another. Lift one another's eyes to the future, to what God has in store for us. So will we be a gathering of people who talk about heaven and the new creation? Will we remind one another each day that one day we will see Jesus face to face and our tears will be wiped from our eyes and we will understand finally what Jesus has been doing in our lives? There's a great statement Jesus said to Peter when he was washing Peter's feet in the upper room before the cross. 
Peter didn't want him to wash the feet. He didn't understand what was happening. Jesus said, what I'm doing now, you don't understand. But later, you will understand. And I sense that is Jesus' word to all of us. Perhaps what he is doing now in your life, you don't understand. You don't see the purpose of it. You just think it's a waste. It's just too much of a struggle. But Jesus says, later, you will understand. You will know what it is I've been doing. And you will know that my purposes are good. The message of Hebrews 3-4. to Trust in God's word. Trust in the future that God has in store for you. Won by Jesus. And you will be able to persevere in the face of struggle and discouragement. The Apostle Paul puts it in similar terms at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And we finish on this. Stand firm, my brothers and sisters. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not in vain.